Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number six on October 28th, 2016, coming to you out of the Low Technology Institute's recording room in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for joining us. Today's main topic is disasters, catastrophes, and how we choose to deal with them. We'll also have our weekly news roundup, research updates, and our DIY feature. This week, we're looking at aquaponics and a simple pump filter you can build yourself. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a variety of systems that help support human societies through time. We've discussed the environment, agriculture, social systems, and the economy. Today we're moving on to something that is a little more out of our control, or at least seemingly so. We're going to talk about disasters, both natural disasters and ones caused by human decisions. We have to remember that all of these systems are interconnected. Natural disasters alone can't destroy a civilization. They can, though, bust up a fragile one, one that is having trouble with its agriculture, one that has social unrest, one whose economy is in the tank, or one who is already subject to a lot of environmental degradation. When these things come together, a natural disaster can often push societies over the edge into collapse. I think it's obvious that societies that live in balance with their environments have robust agriculture and trade systems and a cohesive social system, and they're going to be better at weathering whatever nature throws at them. We'll walk through these topics quickly today, but they're spelled out in more detail in Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail, which is a book which just became available on Amazon, so check that out if you want a little more in-depth read into these different types of disasters, because I'm going to have to move pretty quickly through them because Mother Nature throws a lot at us. Let's start with some natural disasters, and we'll go from least predictable to most predictable. And the reason I'm doing it that way is because, well, it's one way to stay organized. Earthquakes. In an earthquake, the earth shakes at the places where the tectonic plates meet. It can be exacerbated by human activities such as fracking, but for the most part, this is a naturally driven phenomenon. We can predict them only generally. If we know how fast a plate is moving and how much they move on average each quake, we can estimate approximately when the next quake will happen, but it's only precise to the decade. If you want a really nice, approachable discussion of this, check out The New Yorker from July 2015, which has a great article called The Really Big One that describes this in great detail. Several earthquakes reverberate through history, such as Antioch in 526 CE and the two Chinese quakes of 1290, as well as Senshi, China in 1556, Calcutta in 1737, Lisbon in 1755, and the New Madrid earthquake in Missouri in 1811. But the Tokyo and San Francisco earthquakes deserve special attention. Early on the morning of April 18, 1906, San Francisco experienced an 8-magnitude earthquake. It shifted the ground near the fault line 2.5 meters, about 2.5 yards, vertically, and 6 meters laterally. The masonry buildings held up well, but residential buildings, which were largely made of wood, collapsed and fires swept the city, fueled by wood and broken gas lines. Looting and riots were so bad that Eugene Schmitz, mayor of then San Francisco, issued a shoot-to-kill order allowing law enforcement officials, including a band of about a thousand volunteer patrolmen, to execute looters and the disobedient on sight. On September 1st, 1923, an 8-magnitude earthquake struck 50 kilometers, or about 31 miles, south of Tokyo, shifting the ground 4.5 meters horizontally and 2 meters vertically, deepening the bay leading into Tokyo's harbor by about 100 meters, causing an 11-meter or 36-foot tsunami, and it flattened half of the buildings in the area. 
Most of the buildings were wooden, which led to a citywide fire. In total, the disaster killed 143,000 people, most of whom died in the fire. And the damage was estimated at 37.5% of the country's gross national product. Can you imagine a single catastrophe tanking 37.5% of the national GDP? More recently, major earthquakes have struck Alaska, Tangshan, China, and Mexico City, and others. California and the Northwest Coast are waiting for a big one, an 8-plus magnitude one, coming in the near future. All right, let's look at landslides, or avalanches, rock slides, slumps, creeps, or mudslides. These are all called mass movements by geologists. Think of the soil as the toppings on a pizza. Under the right conditions, the toppings can slide off the crust, which would be the equivalent of the bedrock. Usually this is caused by a lubricant. In pizza, it's sauce. In nature, it's water. Human activities such as deforestation upslope of an unstable mass can trigger mudslides, but most of them are natural occurrences. Although these are catastrophic for the inhabitants, landslides can preserve a snapshot of ancient life for archaeologists, and the Ozette site in Washington state exemplifies this fact. Around 1700 CE, a mudslide enveloped the whaling village inhabited by members of the Maka people. Erosion in the 1970s prompted an archaeological excavation, and an unusual amount of wooden and otherwise perishable artifacts were recovered, including hats, uh, woven baskets, mushel cell, whaling harpoons, an owl-headed wooden club, sea otter teeth inlaid cedar whale dorsal fin. These are fantastic things. Uh, have a look at the Ozette site online. Uh, Google image search will bring up a lot of these artifacts for you. One of the worst modern landslides happened in Langarone, Italy, just upstream of the Viont Dam. This hydroelectric dam was built in 1959, creating a large reservoir lake in the upstream gorge. Although minor slumps had occurred since the 1960s, Heavy rains in October 1963 released 270 million cubic meters, or about 350 cubic yards, of rock and sediment traveling 110 kilometers an hour, about 68 miles per hour, into the lake. This caused a 325-foot or 100-meter-high wave to top the dam and travel downriver. The town of Langaron was obliterated, and 2,000 people died within five minutes. It wasn't just the landslide that killed people, it was a landslide induced by human activity. What about volcanism? Upwelling magma drives volcanism. Four out of five volcanoes around the world are located on the Pacific Ring of Fire, which we all learned about in elementary school. Some can also be found over hotspots, though, like Hawaii and Iceland. You might liken a volcano to a clogged pore that causes a pimple, and at a certain point, the Pressure's got to give, and this has devastating effects for things living near volcanoes and for teenagers' faces. The best-known ancient volcanic eruption occurred on August 24th, 79 of the Common Era, when Mount Vesuvius erupted and blanketed the nearby town of Pompeian Ash. Vesuvius is located about 150 kilometers, about 100 miles south of Rome, and the towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum were nestled just 10 kilometers southwest of the volcano. Sixteen years earlier, the dormant Vesuvius awakened, causing intermittent earthquakes and tremors until its eruption. Approximately 141 cubic feet or 4,000 cubic meters of tephra, that's what flies out of the volcano, spread over 300 square kilometers or about 116 square miles, reducing the height of Vesuvius from around 2,000 to 1,200 meters high. That's a reduction of almost 2,000 feet. This killed approximately 13,000 people. The eruptions of Thera in 1470 BCE and Krakatoa in 1883 of the Common Era were more explosive, but their associated tsunami were more devastating than the actual eruption itself. 
On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens, a volcano in Washington state, erupted with more force than geologists predicted, killed 57 humans and thousands of large game animals. The eruption reduced the height from 2950 to 2550 meters. That's about a drop of 1300 feet. This triggered landslides and forest fires. It blew the side of the mountain down into the surrounding countryside. It's one of the most dramatic natural disasters of the modern era. Tornadoes are largely an American phenomenon. Out of the 1,200 reported tornadoes each year, a thousand of them are found in America. They're hard to study because of how strong they are and how difficult they are to predict with accuracy. Although tornadoes have occurred for thousands of years, archaeologists have difficulty documenting them because the destruction that we see in the archaeological record could have come from many sources. It was only around the beginning of the second millennium CE when we have written records of tornadoes appearing in the European historical record when they struck both the British Isles and Central Europe. The deadliest tornado struck the states of Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana on March 18, 1925. The tri-state tornado traveled over 219 miles, or 350 kilometers, at up to 117 kilometers an hour, about 73 miles an hour, and it killed almost 700 people, destroying entire towns. People reported having only a few minutes from the first appearance of the clouds to the passing of the tornado. I mean, imagine it moving 75 miles an hour. The same storm system was responsible for tornadoes across the Midwest that day, causing an additional 52 deaths. Anybody who has been near a tornado will not forget the experience. Tsunami, formerly known as tidal waves, are caused by seismic events, volcanism or landslides on the ocean's edge. Think of it as a ripple across the Pacific Pond when a pebble is dropped on one side. The largest tsunami we know of in Earth's history was caused by a meteorite that crashed into the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago. Most of us, including a majority of scientists, attribute the extinction of the dinosaurs to this impact. But in addition to precipitating the largest known die-off of animal species, the meteorite also caused a tsunami large enough to travel hundreds of kilometers inland from the Gulf of Mexico. In the 1400s BCE, the Greek island of Thera erupted, creating a caldera crater that can still be seen today. The ensuing tsunami may have reached 35 meters in height. It may have been responsible for the collapse of the Minoan civilization on Crete. Tsunami continued to claim thousands of lives in more recent times. On August 26, 1883, Krakatoa erupted and became one of the most energetic eruptions in recorded history. It caused a 10-meter high wave near the eruption and waves up to 40 meters high elsewhere. Most people lost their lives due to the tsunami rather than the eruption itself. On May 11, 2011, the fifth most powerful earthquake in recorded history occurred just off of Japan's coast, causing a 40-meter high tsunami to wash up to 10 kilometers inland, or 6 miles inland in some places. This disaster caused tens of thousands of deaths and injuries and billions of dollars in damage. But the most well-known effect was the nuclear accident it caused when it flooded the Fukushima Daiichi reactor station, destabled the backup generators that were cooling the cores, and precipitated a meltdown that leaked radioactive material into the surrounding environment and ocean. Again, all of these things are connected. Natural fires have been part of many forest and grassland ecosystems since deep geologic time. Fuel plus oxygen plus heat equals fire, and a fire will burn as long as those conditions are met. Conditions that vary by local ecology, wind, biomass, and history. The greatest fires recorded in history occurred in cities. Rome in 64 CE, Tokyo in 1657, London in 1666, and Chicago in 1871. But natural fires have been common since before humans existed. Today's damage comes largely from urban housing sprawling into city-adjacent forests. Alaska and northern Canada have large fires each year, but even without being fought, they produce less damage because of the low population density. It's fires in the heavily populated western United States and Australia 
that produced the most loss of life and destruction of property. Australia, though, has the worst history of modern fires affecting humans and property. In the last half century, the Hobart, Ash Wednesday, Sydney, and Canberra fires all stand out as exceptionally destructive, burning over a million sheep, hundreds of people, and thousands of structures. Air temperatures within the Ash Wednesday fire of 1983 reached temperatures of 660 degrees Celsius, or over 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. It melted aluminum siding into puddles. Flooding is the sudden upwelling of water, and it can come from rivers, precipitation, hurricane storm surge, or other sources. Monsoon rains can provide predictable seasonal floods, as can winter snowmelt, but others come as a dangerous surprise. Although many societies harness the power of floods for energy today and agriculture throughout human history, no society has gotten away with this without consequences. China's Yellow River is one of the muddiest, as it picks up loose ssettlement, these are wind-blown soils, in its upper reaches and deposits them in eastern China. For over 4,000 years, the Chinese have worked to dredge, canalize, and contain this river, sometimes called the River of Sorrow, because of its propensity to flood. In 1332, 7 million people are reported to have drowned in a flood, followed by another 10 million dying of famine and disease. Today, urban areas are particularly prone to flash flooding due to pavement, cement, and other impermeable surfaces. Storm drains are built to handle typical rainfall, but intense storms often cause localized flooding. In some cases, they back up sewer systems, allowing untreated waste to commingle with the floodwaters. The 1984 Dapto flash flood in Australia caused $90 million in damage. In other parts of the world, snowmelt and rains often cause heavy spring floods in the Mississippi, Danube, and other river valleys. The monsoon causes flooding along the Indus, Nile, Amazon, and many other tropical rivers. On average, 20,000 are killed and 75 million affected annually by floods. Tropical cyclones, or hurricanes as they're called in the United States, are large rotational storms that are the product of warm ocean waters. Although they are seasonal, they are only predictable today thanks to satellite imagery and modern meteorological observations. As the earth warms, so too will the oceans, increasing the scale, range, and season of hurricanes. China has historical records going back thousands of years and sits in the path of tropical cyclones, which helps us to appreciate the continuity of devastation these storms have caused over the millennia. In 1633, a historian recorded a series of storms, quote, In the sixth lunar month of the sixth year of the Emperor Chongzhen, typhoon struck. Torrential rain fell for ten days. Houses collapsed. Naval battleships were drifting in the sea. Eight or nine out of ten were destroyed, drowning numerous soldiers. Since the first year of Chongzhen, there was no year without a typhoon strike. The damage was especially serious this year. It was widely believed the culprit was a mischievous dragon. End quote. That quote was found in a paper by Liu, who was a geographer working at the Louisiana State University. He used geological cores and tree ring data to identify catastrophic storms on the Gulf of Mexico going back 4,000 years. Even in areas without written records, the flooding caused by a storm surge favorable weather conditions for a hurricane formation, and torrential rain can be recorded by proxies in the sedimentary record, tree rings, and speleothems, which are cross-sections of stalactites. A Mesoamerican creation story shared by the Aztecs, Maya, and others recounts the previous attempts of the gods to create people, and the proto-humans in one of the previous ages were destroyed by a hurricane. As a graduate of Tulane University's anthropology department, hurricanes have a special place in my heart. I moved to New Orleans in August 2006, almost one year to the day after Hurricane Katrina devastated the Crescent City, and I evacuated a few years later for Hurricane Gustav. Tropical cyclones are one of the most devastating natural disasters for humans because of their immense size and power. 
Notable storms of the last century include the typhoon that struck Tokyo in 1923, causing an earthquake, fire, and tornadoes. Typhoon Tip in 1979 was the largest storm on record and would have covered the western United States from California to Kansas and Montana to New Mexico. Typhoon Haiyan devastated the Philippines in 2013 and may be the strongest tropical cyclone on record. Hurricane Katrina was the most expensive storm to date, and even now, a decade after its 2005 landfall, its effects are still palpable in the city and the surrounding region. Since then, Hurricane Sandy struck the New York area in late October 2012, causing coastal flooding, high winds, and record snowfalls in upland regions. As coastal population and infrastructure grow, so too does our risk of tropical cyclone devastation. Drought is a slow-moving catastrophe. Since you don't know you're in it, until it's been going on for a while. In short, drought is brought on by a deficit of rain that can't be made up by tapping groundwater. Droughts have been implicated in the collapse of many communities and even large-scale societies as sedentary populations are dependent on precipitation-based foods, and unlike mobile hunter-gatherers, these populations are loath to leave when resources fail. Mesopotamians, Egyptians, Chinese, Mayas, Anasazi, settlers in the New World, and many others have been negatively affected by drought. Starting in 1932, six years of severe drought in the American Midwest withered plants and dried the topsoil, which windstorms blew away. This disaster, known as the Dust Bowl, displaced half a million people during the Great Depression, stranding an already struggling United States government. Today, the Australia and the U.S. South and West suffer from severe drought as the result of natural changes in precipitation exacerbated by extreme overuse of groundwater resources. So let's turn now from that litany of suffering that is natural disasters to human-related disasters. And this isn't to say that humans can't exacerbate the cause and effects of natural disasters, but what we're going to talk about now are disasters that are almost solely of human making. In this case, let's go from most to least preventable. The way I've split this up isn't necessarily an endorsement of the Book of Revelations, but I think the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse are a useful way to divide up these disasters with one addition. The traditional horsemen are disease on a white horse, war on a red horse, famine on a black horse, and death astride a pale or a skeletal horse. I'd like to add blight, and he would of course be riding a green horse, but it wouldn't be a healthy green, it would be a pale kind of sick green, and this would represent environmental degradation. So let's talk about war, the red horse. There's a big difference in types of conflict when we go from personal to impersonal violence. Personal violence is when somebody kills a member of your family and you carry out a vendetta and you kill the killer. That's personal violence. You have a personal reason to do it. And you do it usually one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. Impersonal violence is something completely different when you have armies of usually men fighting one another and killing people they don't know and who they don't necessarily have a personal connection or problem with. This is a sea change in human society when we go from personal to impersonal violence. Major factors that social scientists point to that often lead to conflict tend to be things related to population density, resource stress, and social stratification. My question though is, since we've learned to curb other instincts for sex, food, sleep, and elimination, why can't we curb our behavior for violence? Many of us can, and I don't mean to say that every person is violent, of course not. Although our chance of dying by disease has decreased over the last 500 years, our chance of dying by violence, uh, especially by war, have actually gone up over the last 500 years. That's probably largely a factor of the industrialization of warfare and the ease by which we can move people around the globe to fight each other, which is kind of unfortunate. 
Some societies are lauded as peaceful by anthropologists, such as the Kung and the Mumbuti, as well as the Hutterites and the Amish. But it should be pointed out that each one of these societies has an elaborate social mechanism to diffuse personal violence, and they're also too small to engender impersonal violence. So while we might look to these so-called peaceful societies for ideas, we have to remember they're living at a much smaller scale that might not actually work at a global level. Do I have an answer for how to curb warfare and violence in the world? If I did, I'd probably be working on that. Um, I, I think it's a perennial question, and wherever inequality in any way exists, there is the propensity for violence. Let's move on to the black horse, and that, of course, is famine. I put famine in the anthropogenic category, even though many people would link famine to natural occurrences, such as a flood or drought, because, especially today, hunger is a question of distribution of food rather than production. Today we produce enough food for everybody in the world to eat. It's just not distributed in a way that everybody is able to eat. But this isn't just true today, post-industrialization. Even the Irish potato famine, which I've teased already, I'm going to spend uh, an entire podcast talking about in the near future. Ireland was a net exporter of food during the famine. It was British colonial law and rulership that led to the actual famine. It wasn't due to a lack of production on the part of the Irish. The white horse is ridden by disease. Today we see both fast-acting plagues and pandemics, as well as creeping chronic diseases. Some are preventable, especially the chronic diseases, and especially those that are related to behavior, such as heart disease, lung cancer, and COPD. Other diseases will probably persist because they don't strike until we're past reproductive age. Therefore, evolution doesn't select against those of us with the genes that make us susceptible to, say, Alzheimer's, dementia, and some cancers. Childhood diseases often take those who are susceptible out of the gene pool before they're able to reproduce. Since these other diseases happen in late life, you've already passed those genes on by the time you know that you're going to be a carrier. Pandemics, especially those of diseases that are already known, such as Ebola, are inexcusable, really, if you take it from a detached point of view. The Ebola vaccine was not fast-tracked until it became a potentially global threat, even though we knew about Ebola since the 1970s. The structure of our research and development is profit motive based, and so until enough people are dying of a disease such as Ebola, there's no profit in developing a vaccine for it. In my opinion, this is not very smart, because we don't know what disease might explode and cover the world before we're able to develop a vaccine that we could have done last year had we wanted to. This is really letting wounds fester until they're profitable to treat them, and it doesn't seem like the best policy. And now for the extra horse of the apocalypse, the green horse, which is ridden by blight. We introduce plenty of chemicals into the environment, but because of its size, we feel that the, this is an old saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. And this was true up until a point, but it seems we can't agree on what is that point, what is the safe level of certain chemicals in the environment. Often these chemicals make it back into our bodies through the foods we eat. Sometimes we introduce these chemicals by using derived products such as Teflon and plastics. We haven't run long-term, multi-generational trials to see what the effects will be 50, 100, 200 years down the road. They might be benign, but we don't know yet. The Iroquois had the idea of the seventh generation test. This is, ask how this decision or action will affect somebody living seven generations down the line from you, and then act accordingly. I think for all of our environmental degradation and all of our inputs into the environment, we should start using the seventh generation test. And I think a lot of what we're doing today wouldn't pass muster. 
Finally, the pale horse, death. Death comes for us all, and nobody can tell us what happens next from experience. Here we can think about how all the disasters that I've talked about today come together. They say misery loves company, and disasters are certainly gregarious. Famine and disease often accompany war. Hurricanes bring floods, earthquakes. Earthquakes themselves bring landslides and tsunami. And all of those things then are linked back to disease and sometimes conflict. When we have a society where other systems are fragile, it only takes the bump of a disaster to send us crashing down. So now we have to turn, of course, to our society and natural disasters. It's easy to point fingers at the past and find fault in disaster preparation and response. It's harder to see our own vulnerabilities and to do something about them. Every day we see disasters on the news, from unexpected natural ones to entirely preventable human-caused catastrophes. So you might ask, well, what can we do about it? And it's hard to act today for a potential payoff in the future. If it were easy to do that, we'd have no smokers, everybody would be fit, and we'd all have big savings accounts and retirement plans. Prevention is cheaper and easier than solving a problem later, but we just can't seem to get a handle on this as individuals or societies, and I'm no exception. When we're specifically talking about natural disasters, though, there are some steps we can each take. The first thing to do would be to assess where you live. What disasters are likely to come to your area? Go through the list. Note how likely each type of disaster is and what steps you could take if that happened. Work backwards from there, preparing what you need now when it's easy to do that when you're in a stable position. If you're building or modifying your house, plan with these things in mind. For many, this also means having some food, water, fuel, and supplies on hand. As more and more people eat out every day, they have less and less food stored up. If there was a disruption in the food distribution system, how many of us would be able to survive for a week, two weeks, a month, a season? Next, take a look at some of the human-caused disasters and take similar steps, although it's really difficult to prepare for some of them, of course. For example, how would you prepare for the eventuality that war would strike in your community? I mean, what can you really do? I'm not suggesting everyone build a bunker. Um, and furthermore, few of us have actual experience in war. We can buffer ourselves against drought, blight, famine, and illness to some extent by stockpiling a, a little. And I, I don't mean go nuts, right? I'm not advocating everybody becomes a prepper or anything like that. But having a little bit on hand helps even when a small-scale disaster strikes you individually. Say you lose your job or somebody gets sick in your family. If you have food stored up in the basement or uh, in a pantry, that can alleviate some of the stress. At least you won't have to worry about food for the foreseeable future. I guess the bottom line is, and it sounds very pedantic, and I don't mean to be pedantic. We're not children and we all know these things. It's just difficult for us to stick our head above the the flow of our lives and you know look at what's coming next or what potentially could be coming next and change the course of what we're doing to avoid that. It really comes back to the Aesop's fable of the ant and the grasshopper and certainly at this point it pays to be the ant while most of us end up being grasshoppers. Next week we're going to tie this all together and look at the idea of collective hubris in depth and this is the idea that really pushes and this is the idea that I really pushed throughout my book, but I hope to uh, flesh it out a little more with examples from the ancient world and, um, and use that as a lens to look at our own society. So stay tuned for that. The week after that, we are moving on to a new series on food, and we'll kick that off with a whole week uh, on the website and on the podcast about meat. 
This week's DIY feature is making a low-cost filter for a water pump. I use mine in an aquaponics system, which you can see on our website. I did a post, uh, introduction to aquaponics, and then I also put this up as our DIY feature, so we had two aquaponics posts this week. It's really useful for all kinds of pumps. It doesn't have to be using an aquaponics system. I've had a small 60 gallon per hour electric pump and it saved my butt quite a few times. You'd be surprised how often it comes in handy to be able to pump some water out of something. A $5 filter box like this can really prolong the life of the pump by keeping the gunk out that would otherwise mess up the mechanism. So really this is just a small Tupperware with a snapping lid. I melted uh, a couple hundred holes in the top very systematically as you can see on the blog post. Made a holster to hold the Scotch-Brite pad. The Scotch-Brite pad slides right in, the water flows through there into the tub, and then the pump moves the water out. And it really has a good flow rate. It doesn't seem to impede the mechanism at all, but it seems to keep a lot of the gunk out of the motor. The other nice thing in an aquaponics environment is we're trying to build up a biofilm that changes the ammonia in the water into nitrites and the nitrites into nitrates. And this gives a surface for that bacteria to live. So check out the blog on the website for images and full directions on how to do this. Now let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. Two stories on booze this week. Alcohol is one of the first things people made when they started farming eight to 10,000 years ago. Dr. Arnold, out of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee campus, has recreated a 2,500-year-old alcoholic beverage made with barley, honey, meadowsweet, and mint. It's technically called a braggot. Check it out. NPR also brings us a story from the Land Institute, which is working to grow perennial grains. The idea there is instead of harvesting the entire wheat plant each year, we just harvest the grains and leave the plant to regrow next year. And this seems to be a more sustainable long-term fix for a lot of the problems in modern agriculture, but we'll talk about it another day. They've put out a beer with some of their grains, and it comes out under the label Long Root Ale. So if you see that, give it a try. We also have some small stories on how building codes are working to incorporate small houses, the cost of building small houses, and how small towns are better able to tackle climate change. Another story that caught my attention comes from NPR, and it outlines the renaissance of porridge. As winter is just around the corner, check it out for some good ideas on how to liven up that morning oatmeal. You'd be surprised at how diverse the world of stewed grains has gotten again. Those are some of the stories we're following in low-tech news. To see links to the stories we discussed and more, visit the low-tech website, low-tech-institute, all one word, dot wordpress.com, by following the link in our podcast profile. Now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. This week, we move forward on both the acorn research and the growing mushrooms. My dog Casey and I spent an afternoon collecting about three and a half pounds of acorns from the park. We got a lot of looks from the passersby, but we were able to gather what may end up being about 5,000 calories worth of acorns in about an hour's worth of work. I'm currently shelling them and leaching them to take out the bitter tannins, but I'll do more on that in a fuller post uh, on the blog coming up soon. I also picked up a ton of horse manure. Literally, it's in my garage right now, fermenting um, and heating up, and I turn it over and it cools down, and this is going to be the base for growing mushrooms, so it's called the substrate for growing mushrooms. Finally this week, aquaponics are moving along. We've introduced some new fish and cleaned out the infestation of anchor worms we had last week. Everybody seems to be doing fine and seems happy and frisky, so that's restabilized to where it should be. That's just a little bit of the research we have going on. We'll have updates next week on a couple more projects we'll be working on. 
Well, that's it for the Low Tech Podcast. The podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Tech Institute's recording room. Our music was Ice Cave off the album Songs from an Unmade World by Visigur. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons attribution and share-like license, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating. It helps to boost our audience reach. I'll be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me at soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast. You can also find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, .wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter at lowtechno and reach me directly at lowtechinstitute, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.